Heard across the Resonate Regional Radio Network. It's my time, it's my life. I hope you will come along. This is Rural Queensland Today with Ben Dobbin. Good morning and welcome to Rural Queensland today on the 11th of May, a Thursday morning. You're with Ben Dobbin across the Resonate Broadcast Network. A very good morning to everybody listening to us through 4SB in Kingaroy, 4ZR in Roma, 4VL in Charleville, 4HI in Emerald, 4LM Mount Isa, 4LG Longridge, 4GC Charters Towers and the Hot Country Network. Good morning to you. If you're listening to us online and you're listening to us through Spotify, I hope you're well and enjoying it. Uh, so much going on this morning, so much going on across our state. We're going to unpack um, this levy. That's the question. Is 10% biosecurity levy. What is it? How does it work? We'll look at that as well. We're going to talk to a young man who is going to America. He's only from Mount Isa. He's already 10 and he's bucking out steers and he's already through and going overseas riding rough stock. We'll catch up with him. We'll look at the Dolby store sale, that tragedy that's taking place at the moment with that missing person. We'll give you an update on the lady that is missing at the moment uh, in Streaky Bay in South Australia and much, much more. It's a big show. You're with Ben Dobbin on rural Queensland today. It's Thursday morning, the 11th of May, across the Resonate Broadcast Network. Let's get into it and give you an update. So much going on. That's up next on Rural Queensland Today. Welcome back to Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Um, Police have issued a statement um, only last night around the Queensland woman who has gone missing in South Australia's uh, Western Air Peninsula three days ago. Now, this is uh, a very close-to-home for a lot of people listening to us across rural Queensland today who obviously are fully aware of the family. Uh, the South Australian police uh, are seeking information from the public to find the 48-year-old uh, female. Now they've just given her name as Julie. They won't release the surname. Um, who went missing around 5pm on Sunday, May the 7th in Streaky Bay. Yesterday, Mounted Police joined the search of the towns and surrounds and they've also got helicopter search with heat sensing technology, drones, a boat and um, there are crews on the ground. Family, friends and relatives have not heard from her or received and no reports of her being sighted or identified from Streaky Bay and that is a real concern. The ABC website has been reporting uh, that there was no indication of anything untowards or foul play. Um, my understanding is her husband uh, went out to grab something. They're on holidays. And when he came back, uh, Julie was gone. This is a terribly, terribly sad situation at this moment and our thoughts are with everybody. It is very close to home uh, and it is obviously uh, something that, is going to affect a lot of people. We just pray for Julie. Uh, we we hope that she is okay. Um, and if anybody um, has knows her whereabouts, and I'm saying this or knows somebody, one three one triple four is the number. So that is there's some CCT footage uh, looking, but Streaky Bay is a coastal town, 720 kilometres from Adelaide, 300 kilometres northwest of Port Lincoln. And that is a very, very concerning and uh, really, really um, sad, sad situation. Um, the brother of 
uh, Julie, um, has made a plea um, and told Channel 7 News uh, that we need you back. We want you back. Her brother Todd travelled to Streaky Bay um, and he is there as well, along with her husband Cliff, and they are at this moment uh, searching, praying and hoping. There has been no reports of any local sightings and they now have uh, great concerns for her welfare because she's not familiar with the area. This is just uh, just a dreadful, dreadful situation and one that I just know that a lot of people are praying. Uh, we will keep you updated with this uh, throughout the course of the week and with what's going on. Out of respect for everybody, I am only going to report what is being reported through the major news streams at this moment, regardless. But our thoughts are with everybody, um, friends, family, everybody, and here's hoping that Julia's found safe. We'll take a break, come back with more. This is Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. So much more to get through this morning on Rural Queensland Today. Welcome back to Rural Queensland Today. There's no two ways about it. The housing crisis is at its all-time worst. Um, Fiona Cornelia is the Q Shelter Chief Executive. Uh, she joins us this morning. Queensland's peak body for affordable housing and ha- the homeless sector um, has now looked at the federal budget and is happy that the, they've, they've addressed the need to look at the cost of living pressures. But there is so much more to go. Fiona, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us. I, I honestly believe this is one of our biggest challenges. I, I understand we've got all these grand plans to, to cut emissions, um, to, to try and do all these things, preserve water, but rate of people and everyday Aussies and Queenslanders throughout regional, throughout the cities who are losing their houses and who are left on the street at the moment is at a record high and it is a proper, proper concern. It's really true. I mean, I think when you hear the the budget speech refer to population growth, um, the budget papers have identified the projections about population uh, being significant. 1.5 million people over five years, I think, was cited. Um, We need a housing plan for that. Um, Just as you think about, well, we're going to have this many people who will help fill jobs and help industry and the economy thrive. We need a way to house them. And, uh, you know, I think that Probably at a national level, there's a need to really coordinate an immediate uh, response to how we're going to build a lot and build it fast. How do we do it? Like, I mean, we've got, uh, and I know this, we've got well camps sitting in Toowoomba. We've got things everywhere. And I'm not saying, I'm just talking about a, a short-term housing th- thing, but how are we going to do it? You talk about building it fast, yet we've got... We've got an emerging population with immigration set to 660,000 in the next two years. Now, Peter Dutton, I'm not saying everybody's right. And and look, I understand how polarising politics can be because there's two sides to every story. But Peter Dutton's come out and just said, listen, we're going to be in a hell of a mess from a housing perspective because people, we're already struggling. Now, I understand Mm. we've got to get the jobs. I understand we've got to get people in. I understand we, you know, I get all that. You can't just build houses overnight. It just does not happen. Now, um, the $20 a per week increase to step in the right direction, okay, $20, come on. It's mm. You guys must be scratching your head in disbelief. Yeah. Look, we would have preferred to see income support increase further. I think there's a real case for that. Just uh, if, you, if you add up all of the cost of living pressures, 
as far in excess of um, a small percentage increase in in the, the most challenging um, benefit to be on in terms of job job seeker. But you know, we know it's a time of opportunity as well, and and there is low unemployment. So you know, we have been engaged in in the federal government's examination of the nature and extent of poverty in Australia to really say we need a nationally coordinated approach to a raft of measures, including income support, including housing, including employment training, and making sure children are uh, retained in education for as long as possible so they're on the right pathway towards economic participation. There are some jurisdictions in the world doing a really good job of this. In Canada and in Ireland, they have nationally coordinated poverty reduction plans. And these measures are all good um, and we we have called for measures like these, but unless we really coordinate them into a plan and we measure that plan and we monitor it, if it's not succeeding, then we make adjustments in real time to make sure that you know all Australians have opportunity, but also that there are no barriers to accessing those opportunities. In terms of planning for housing, I think... I feel the challenge too. I think the now proposition, what do we do now with the immediate crisis is really, really tough. And we have called upon the state government to quickly appraise existing buildings um, and sites for immediate activation. They need to be suitable, of course. Um, They need to be safe. But we need a quicker way of saying, here's a site, here's here's an opportunity, and how do we bring that opportunity to market and the second thing, we know that there are many local governments around the state who are thinking about how they can help. Um, they're identifying land, for example, and they're using their planning schemes to to identify how much residential growth is needed to meet the population demand for every local government area in Queensland. And that is a really important thing because at some point, local governments have to interpret this challenge through their planning schemes. How much do we need to build to meet the population's needs? And how are we going to get there? Yes. Um, but in, in terms of the quick and the now, uh, I think uh, there are many, many modular home builders using new technologies that are knocking on our door. They're knocking on government's door. I think that needs to be assembled. Well, what's stopping them? I, I mean, you can look at this. Mm. You can be diplomatic about this, and I understand. I, I, I dead said understand as the peak body for Queensland. Um, affordable home, housing and, and homeless sector. How you guys go about this? What what what's stopping them getting done? Uh, is it red tape? Oh look, I think I think we just needed a change in our mindset. If this was a post reconstruction era, or if Queensland had been through what we have experienced—massive natural disasters—we mobilise. You know, yep. I think it it needs a change in mindset to mobilise people differently, um, to perhaps think differently about how to lead, you know, a, 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 base, a basically massive scaling up of, of construction uh, using the best technologies we can find. I mean, all governments at all levels in Australia and private sector and the not-for-profit sector are looking at technology and how that will change the future. Uh, we've got people knocking on our door and, and state government is working on um, prefabricated modular home concepts and and plans but I just think we need to grab that and we need to scale it up. We need to make sure it's good quality so that people don't suffer and get injured and all the rest of it but but I believe there are operators out there who are trying to scale up and help scaling up quickly. If we can match that to the land with local governments on board and uh, you know get the community on site as well because we all really need to embrace these solutions. 
I think it needs a change in mindset and massive mobilisation. Oh, I agree with you. I, I absolutely think that it is something that we should all be thinking about long term and, and, and really it's it's something that we probably need to consider more often than not. Um, it, it, wow. It, it, there's something in this, there really is, um, that if we can come together, we can look at it and you're talking about it. If it was post-war, mate, they'd go to work. They would just go to work. They, you know, we've had a natural disaster. COVID, we we had that. That was our disaster, and we're we're coming out of it. So we need something to do. How bad is it really? I mean, we we see. Are you concerned just of the homeless rates? I mean, regionally, I'm getting letters. I'm getting emails. It it Mm -hmm. is a concern. Our focus is very much on the city from day to day. That's just the way. Well, this government is so city centric, but regionally, we've got big problems as well. And that's because, you know, when places like southeast Queensland don't have the housing supply and the prices rise, people are pushed from from southeast Queensland into the regions. So yes, I think, you know, when we think about the solutions, we think of them being statewide. We think of um, the need being distri- much more distributed across the state um, than before. And we think each each local government area, each each regional area needs its own targets, its own plan for how to get there, um, and but that needs to be tied together by state and national leadership. But it's it's really true. I mean, I hear people people will cite case studies to me. Well, oh my daughter got a rental home quite easily, but individual case studies don't tell the whole story. Um, they can't be generalised to the whole population. When you look at the numbers, that rents have risen so steeply um, beyond yeah. uh, the inflation of wages. And then it's not it's not even that, it's the fact that the housing just isn't there, the supply um, and vacancy rates below 1%. The REIQ itself says this is well below a healthy market for people to be able to find, get and keep their homes. I think the other big thing that we have to put on, on the agenda is if more people are renting for life and the way our rental market's structured through individual ownership, which is fine and there are... Many, many landlords doing uh, the best they can to help as well. But it means people are pretty vulnerable every six months when their lease comes up for renewal about what's going to happen. So when I grew up, you know, life was pretty stable. You got to know your neighbours. We scampered in and out of each other's houses. You formed really deep connections with people and with your local doctor and you went to the same school. Now, moving is not a bad thing per se, but if you're forced to move against your wishes and you're always uprooting your family, there's a measure, uh, an extent to which each move, um, it genuinely costs thousands of dollars. So for people really on the margin between um, hanging on financially and being in that um, income bracket that makes you really pretty disadvantaged, it, it pushes those people into severe hardship. Um, and the uncertainty about the future, I cannot imagine. Oh, my God. Raising I, a family yeah. with that. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. Great to chat. Great to chat, Fiona. Thanks so much for being with us. It is a concern and hopefully one that's getting fixed sooner rather than later. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Everybody talking to me yesterday wanted to know about this 10% biosecurity levy on farmers. And it's quite interesting, you know, that was sort of buried in the paperwork of the budget that was released on Tuesday night. Now, Murray Watt um, says the government will take the next 12 months to consult and explain how this new levy works in the industry. Well, that's all well and good. But, you know, I can tell you now, um, we will have Murray Watt on in the next couple of days to try and get an understanding and how 
this will be imposed and how farmers will be seeing it considering they're going to pay a lot more money moving forward. So how much does each sector pay? And the Country Life broke this down uh, yesterday in, in a way that I thought was written very well. So here is what we know. From July 24, a new levy will be introduced. It's equivalent to the 10% of the 2020-2021 levy rates. So, for example, a grass-fed cattle producer will now pay an extra 50 cents per head for a total of $5.50. So 50 cents a head for everything you send. A cotton producer, well, it, it will pay 22.5 cents per 227 kilo bale while an apple producer will pay 18 cents a kilo and so on. So that's how it works. So why are the farmers targeted? Why are we the ones who have to pay this? Well, you know, this is why Murray Watt, and we need to talk to him, he believes that they're only going to contribute 6% of the overall biosecurity measure. Importers will contribute 45%, while taxpayers pay 44%. Online shoppers have been hit with a new biosecurity levy uh, for items under $1,000. Well, that, that's going to affect everybody in regional Queensland as well because they all buy gear. So you're going to get hit in other ways, which will be roughly $0.40 cents an item. That covers 3%, and Australia Post will be covering the remaining 2%. So let's just make sure that you know that you'll be covering it. You're a taxpayer. You're also an online shopper. You also uh, go through Australia Post and you're also in agriculture. So you are, in in a lot of ways, (laughs) being hit in every other way for this biosecurity measure. So the cost recovering of the fees for larger importers were increased to $5 and passengers departing Australia will see tickets increased by $10. Some of that will go to biosecurity. So now... A lot of people are upset about this. I had three or four phone calls yesterday from different people who just said, can you please explain to me exactly why, you know, we are now having to have this injection of biosecurity when this has been something on the table that they took away? Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. So how does it work? Let's have a look and think about it. How does this work? This new biosecurity levy that they've been banging on about, and I'm sure that everybody talking and listening to us today understands that we don't need any biosecurity outbreaks. We've got enough challenges as it is in this country. In short, though, it hasn't been decided. They haven't worked it out. So they've come out with this levy, but they actually haven't worked it out. So now the government's saying, well, we're going to talk to industry over the next 12 months and work out the best way forward. Now, they're not sure whether or not it could be just expanding this levy or whether or not it could be new legislation Industry groups have raised concerns, and rightly so, about trying to protect more levies. Domestic farmers, foresters, fisheries, they're all worried. But the easiest thing is they need to put 10% on the existing levies and that they already pay. Now, if that's the way forward and that gives us complete, complete protection, well, I think everybody will be all right. But the government is hammering home that has been the agricultural industry that has called for the sustainable biosecurity funding and that producers should only contribute a small amount. Now, Murray Watt spoke at a post-budget breakfast yesterday and he said there's several groups that need to have the shared responsibility. 
He said, I've been saying in the lead-up to the budget that biosecurity is a shared responsibility and that we all have a responsibility to contribute to the system, whether it be taxpayers, importers, travellers, producers, you name it. Now, the NFF, along with a lot of other groups in their submission to the consultation, said the cost of paying for biosecurity should be shared between importers, taxpayers, and they even mentioned agricultural producers. What I'd say, they said, to farmers who will be paying a little more for this is that as a result, you will get the most biosecurity funding that our country has ever seen to protect their industries and protect their livelihoods. By paying another few hundred dollars a year, which is probably what works out for most small farmers, they will get over a billion dollars worth of extra funding for biosecurity. Well, let's wait and see, Murray Watt. I don't want to go too early, but let's just wait and see whether or not you're true to your word. I understand the extra cost and I understand the need for it because we've been talking about it for a long time. But let's just see if you really consult industry before you go ahead and make these huge statements and whether or not you are 100% committed to making sure that our great state and our country is safe. Well, interesting say. Federal budget uh, defers EMU Swamp Dam funding again. That was the other thing that I wanted to talk about for the people on the Granite Belt. Now, we remember when they ran out of water? Remember they were going to build the pipeline? Well, the future of the $240 million Granite Belt irrigation project is done. You can say what you want. They can say what they want, but it's done. Now, the federal government will try and not proceed with the $162.5 million over seven years from the 2022-2023 EMU Swamp Dam and Pipeline Project. So they're looking at other alternatives. Guess who's behind this? Tanya Plibersek. Her quote, our government and Queensland government are working together to identify viable water security options for the Stanthorpe region. Well, that's just garbage. David Littleproud came out and said the funding had been scrapped and so did Deb Freckington both 50 irrigators and the Southern Down Regional Council have said they would commit 23.4 to the construction, while the government had committed 13.6. Queensland Water Minister Glenn Butcher said the state was still assessing the project. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. In December, he said the estimated cost of the project had been increased to more than $240 million, uh, much more than your July $84 million price tag. It's important to remember funding hasn't been cancelled, only deferred while other options of water security continue. This week's announcement comes after the Albanese government put a 162.5 contribution to the backburner last October. You know, Palaszczuk government announced in November they were going to do it. They went out there and banged a big drum. You know, Paul Antonio was there. The project was going to deliver 12,000 megalitre dam to Emu Swamp. Southwest pipeline, the whole lot. Now the state have pulled out and said, guess what? So is the Australian federal government. And you wonder why, you wonder why we don't trust. They have never, ever, ever, ever dug a dam, this state government. They just won't do it. Since Joby Occupy-Peterson, no one has ever done it. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And you've got a, a leader by the name of Tanya Plibersek who is hell-bent and I mean hell-bent, on protecting water. She released a protecting and growing the future of the world-class agriculture by absolutely saying, and she said in her statement, 
They'll deliver 1.5 to new spending to help ensure agriculture is protected in the short and long term, blah, 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 right? And this is all by the water of the Murray-Darling. She said, managing our water better for the future. She said, the most precious resource is water and the Albanese government is delivering critical water infrastructure, fixing the broken water market and protecting the health of the Murray-Darling. Wow. Watch this space, everyone. I don't want to start the day and be negative on a 9 o'clock and to between 9 and 10, but just watch this space, how this all comes out. A very concerning situation we have now. This is Rural Queensland today. We'll take a break. We'll get into some happier news on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Welcome back to Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Uh, we are lucky enough to have the PNC president um, of the Capricornia School of Distance Education. And uh, we're so lucky. We've spoken to her many times before. Shante Moran joins us this morning. And the battle with the government around the outstation, the camps, for the kids seems to be over. Well, it is over. It, it has prevailed and it, I do want to say thank you to the government after all the stress and time. Finally, um, this new facility is done and the kids are back with their outstation for Distance Ed. Shante, good morning and thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Ben, and good morning to everybody. Thank you very much. Um, yes, it's pretty amazing that um, for us at, at the Emerald Campus that things have turned out so well. They've turned out incredibly. Um, we're very grateful. Let's timeline a little bit um, and, and let's go back. This was always has been in the distance education's um, wheelhouse. So this has been, this campus has been used as a bit of a school camp, parents sort of meeting each other and kids coming away from distance education every year. It's just been part of the part of the um, prerequisite when you do this distance ed. And then, uh, am I right in saying like four years ago, was it four or might not have been that, that they started to pull a few Swifties? Uh, yes, just three, just three, three years ago. So sort of 20, 2020, it sort of all started to, to kick in when things, um, when suddenly they um, noticed the facilities at, um, at, the, at the varying campuses, uh, distance ed campuses. Not every school of distance education has, a, has an outstation facility. So there's, I think there's one, there's one with us, uh, Longreach, Mount Isa, Cairns and Charters Towers. So there's the five sort of spread across the state, which um, were built because of a need for people to be able to get affordable accommodation, to be able to give their kids that face-to-face access to a classroom um, that, you know, that every other child in, in yeah, sure. Australia has access to. So. Sure. You guys fought. When they shut it down, it was the – they didn't realise what they were getting. They got a tsunami and it was um, not brutal but it was in a lot of ways um, pushed to make sure that this is an absolute 100% commitment that, you know, we're not going to muck around. We are just going to continue, continue to to make this uh, happen um, and you went to the very top and – Something happened. I don't know. I don't know how it changed, but finally, the government listened. Now they had to make it, you know, deemed safe, which is right. But your facility Absolutely. now, your facility now is second to none, and the kids are happy. The facilities are there, and they're yours. Um, 
you have them. They're, 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 they're there. And it took a lot of hard work, didn't it? It sure did, Ben. And, you know, if, and if you don't mind me taking a couple of minutes just to run through and thank a few people, um, it definitely wouldn't have happened without everybody's support, um, including, you know, your listeners, people in the community followed along on Facebook um, groups, yourself, um, massive thank you for your commitment to helping us and getting our message out there. The executive, the PNC executive that sort of was, went through that period um, and everybody on the PNC who supported us and right down to, you know, the parents and the grandparents who actually fundraised to build those buildings. So they, I think we actually might have a little, um, there's an anniversary coming up shortly, I think. So it's nearly 30 years that that outstation has been there for in, um, in Emerald. And to our former principal, Ian Bielenberg, and our current principal, Amanda Wren, and all the, I mean, and we have to thank the staff at, at the education department. I mean, it was, it was great that, that in the end, the, the word got in there and they began to understand the significance of these buildings and what they mean to these schools of distance education and particularly what they mean to the kids. Um, it was pretty incredible the way that they came on board. After a bit of a bit of a push of us, you know, we, we all know that there was a, there was a bit of a push and, and a lot of fighting. Um, but I think um, no one's more passionate than than people um, around their own children. Um, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, have to be careful about poking that bear because you just never know. <laughs> yeah, well, they poked <laughs> I think it. Everyone's and, always going to be. Yeah, well, they know, poked it. Now you've got it, and this is the big yeah. thing. Now, look, it wasn't only the Emerald Campus that got shut down as well, was it? There was countless other, you know, areas that got shut down because the way that they were thinking, the government, and it just goes to show if you fight long, long term, you know, you know, like you, your your accommodation was one that's such in Emerald, you know, you know, there's one in Cairns, there was one in Mount Isa, the campuses, that, you know, th- there's still work to be done because, you know, full well, the Chartist Towers, th- th- there's there's still, like, th- they are not hell-bent on this is for everybody. You have to fight for it. And it was the commitment of what you guys did that just made them say, well, hang on, these aren't going away, and they got it done. And Kerry Hayes, the mayor, Lachlan Miller, the local member, they were all instrumental in the way they went about, you know, getting in behind you guys and making it known as well. They were both amazing. They're both on my thank you list here too. Um, And the way that uh, Kerry Hayes and the Central Highlands Regional Council jumped in behind us and offered us a different facility so that we could still all stay together and people could still come in for mini school was amazing. Um, Lachlan, you know, he got a straight to stop. He was amazing. He backed us all the way and it was so good to have him, um, his support. Um, I do hope the department continues to work with these other schools of distance education because I know that some of the other upgrades have been completed and they're not really fit for purpose. So yeah. I do hope that they come back to those guys and revisit um, the need in, that, in those schools of distance education because it really is so important. Um, for the kids to be able to all get together. Um, I'll admit, I definitely, last mini school, we've had our first whole mini school where we were allowed, able to stay there and I did just find myself sitting up at the chucker box just soaking up the pure joy that. that was just radiating out of the place. The kids had big smiles. The parents had big smiles. New families and new home shooters, you know, they were seen, they felt seen because we were all there. It didn't matter if you were staying or not. There's someone to go and, somewhere to go have a cuppa. 
if you're struggling, if you're sitting into a conversation for a while and then suddenly realise, oh, yeah. yeah, okay, this happens to everybody. You know, those Great things might story. seem small, but they're amazing, just the, amazing. The other, the other thing radical. is, the other thing is as well, and I mean this seriously, is that. We have a situation where the numbers have never been so big for distance education. Um, they are, you know, across the state. Now, I understand that there are people in metropolitan areas who are utilising this, but they've never been as great. So the connection thing for kids that don't get to see their classmates face-to-face and just have that that kind of time where they sit up and have a have a chat or they're having breakfast and, you know, you can't you can't put a price on that. No, it's, it's a life skill, and to me, and it's a it's a neurological thing, you know, Ben. Like it's it's developing those skills of building friendships and and um and connecting with your teacher face to face. You know, it's essentially the first relationship a child develops outside of the family. So there's it's so much more to it than just a couple of buildings that could be used for something else. It's a it's a much much bigger thing than that, and it's um it's great to see some understanding of that filter through over those the course of the last. Um, the last three years and sort of more understanding of the importance of that to kids. Um, Very so grateful to everyone who's been involved, everyone who supported us, even if it's just to, you know, just to let us do what we had to do. People didn't have to, you know, it wasn't even necessarily people doing specific things. It was just knowing that there was a whole community of people that we didn't even know existed that were, so keen to back our kids because we think they're pretty amazing, and ultimately that's what this was for. Those kids drove this. Oh, one hundred percent, Shonda, you guys yeah. did this for your children. There's no two yeah. ways about it. This was not um, a self-indulgent thing. This was, and it was also about a legacy. It was also yeah. about the next generation. It was also about the kids that are coming through. So, for that, I can't tell you just how how thankful I think everybody listening to us today are, and it just goes to show that. If you don't go away, and I mean no. this, it, it, you know, you can win. And it, it is it is a very, very rare thing to have a commitment, but it's a bush thing that somebody stands up and goes as hard as he did. It just shows that. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Great news story. Please, everybody's having a good time, and uh, we'll catch up with you again shortly. No doubt we'll be talking to you again. That sounds amazing, Ben. Thank you very much. Thank you to everybody, and don't be afraid to go hard. No, um, yeah, great story. Great Thank story. Thank you so much. Good Thank on you. you. We'll take a break. Come back. This is Rural Queensland Today. I'll tell you what, this is a great story on Rural Queensland Today. Uh, when you want to talk about young men going to America, uh, you think about 18, 19-year-olds going overseas. Uh, well, not at 10 years of age. Yeah, Byron Kirk is 10 years of age and he's going to the World Championships in the US to compete um, for, and represent Australia in the under 11 and under steer ride at the Youth Bull Riding World Finals in Texas. Wowee, August the 2nd to the 6th, just before the Mount Isa Radio, and uh, he joins us this morning. Byron, good morning, mate. How are you, brother? Good, you? All right. How, how happy are you? I mean, you, you want to go to America? You're going there, mate, and you're going to the World Championships. Well, it's a dream come true because I'll tell you what, you go to every one of my mates, they'll say, I'll say, what's your biggest dream? And they'll say, going to America. Yeah, well, you're going there, brother. You're going there. Um, obviously, you had to do a lot of competitions and you've been riding a lot of steers to get there. How'd you get into steer riding? 
Well, it all started when I was two and my mum took me to my first PBR and I've been in love with it since then. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Melissa, uh, um, Byron's mum is there. Uh, I mean, surely you're the plus one to go, Melissa. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I, um, if she's dragged me to such locations as, uh, you know, in the middle of nowhere, then surely I get to go where I can get a bit of shopping done and meet a few people. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's awesome that you're both going, but it's pretty special as well. When Byron rides in the US, he'll be riding for a, a Vietnam veteran he's uh, proud to call a friend, uh, Arthur Dennis. Um, he was running a sausage sizzle and the pair got talking and now, um, you know, Byron will be obviously representing Arthur, which is awesome. Yeah, something very, very special. Yeah, definitely. The bond these two made and Arthur made it to the weekend to watch Byron ride at Mount Isa and they're both just excited to see each other at the end of it. So watching these two um, develop a relationship and then Byron finding out it's his birthday on the day he rides in Texas, oh they, um, it's just given him even more purpose and we come from a defence family. So Byron said, you know, it's his chance to give back to Arthur and say thank you. So how do we support how do we support Melissa and Byron? How do, how do we support you guys here? And, and how do we make more noise and make sure that you guys get the best when you get over there? Um, it's it's a tricky sport with this one because obviously it's, it's, they're going over as a team with the Australian you know, Youth Radio organisation. So, um, you know, a lot of people follow them and get behind their support and uh, you know, they've got a Facebook page and they put a lot of sausage sizzles out and a lot of sure. fundraising for the whole group. So I think that would be probably the best way is just to try get to follow that. them and get behind it. Yeah, right. Um, Youth Rodeo Association, there's fellow Queenslanders, Jake Hawker from Gundawindi, Adam Moss from Toowoomba in the 19 and under bull ride. Clonk Curry's Cade Ferguson taking part in the 15 and under bull ride. Rex Walker from Miriam Vale, who'll be riding in the 13 and under steer ride and obviously – Byron, who is um, being selected. Who's your favourite uh, Australian bull rider and who's your favourite American bull rider? Byron? Um, I'd have to say Bud Williamson. <laughs> you love Bud Williamson. He's your fave. Um, yeah. you, uh, do you get to meet any of these famous bull riders over in America? Will, it, you know, will you get an opportunity to hopefully meet some of these uh, real big professionals, the PBR bull riders? I hope so. Yeah, me too, me too. What a great story. Um, just before Mount Isa Radio, uh, August 2nd, 2nd to 6th, uh, Byron Kirk will be representing Australia in the World Championships. Ten-year-old Mount Isa Radio, uh, Mount Isa bull rider, unbelievable, just awesome. Best of luck, Byron, and great chat. And Melissa, uh, a proud Thank mum. Thank Proud mum, but gee whiz, you've done an amazing job. Uh, what a well-mannered young man that he is and just how proud you must be. Thank you very much. I'm definitely proud of who he's become. So. Yeah, good on you. Enjoy America. We'll take a break. Rural Queensland today. Well, that's it from us here this morning at Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network, the 11th of May, a Thursday morning. Hope you have all enjoyed the show. Ray Hadley joins you next, and we'll be back tomorrow morning from 9am on Rural Queensland today. Ben Dobbin with you across rural Queensland, and remember, when the weed is ripe, keep the headers rolling in the paddock. We will be back again tomorrow morning. Till next time, stay safe on the roads, and it's bye for now.